Why, why do the nations rage? We're in Psalm 2 this morning. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? We have Pharaoh, Sisera, Nebuchadnezzar, Gog and Magog. We have Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, Pharisees, Sadducees. What, what were they even thinking interfering with the Lord and the Lord's anointed one? Nations come and go. Kingdoms rise and fall. And, and there's a commonality that exists between historical events in Israel and the rise and fall of nations. From, from Egypt's reign, from China's Shang and Chao dynasties, the, the powerful Mayans and their temples in Central America, Assyria's emperors, we have Babylon's kings and Israel's exile, Persia's superpowers, up to, up to Alexander the Great's great unseating of the Middle East. There is something happening in Israel all along this time, nearly a millennium. It's the same thing that was happening during the same span of time covering the Trojan War breaking out. Homer's writing of his, of his epic, the playing of the first recorded Olympic Games, the founding of the Roman Republic, the living and dying of, of Buddha's, India's Buddha and China's Confucius. As, as kingdoms came and went, what was, what was happening? What was this commonality that was happening throughout all of Israel's history during these events? In a span of 800 years or more, there's a shared commonality. All these nations and events existed within the time frame of, of the writing and collection of the book of Psalms, the complete 150 Psalms in the Psalter. Between the prophet Moses' song way back when, we have Psalm 90, to King David's 73 or more Psalms, to the Psalms describing Israel's experience after returning from exile, right up to Alexander the Great. The 150 Psalms we have, they, it's some of the oldest and some of the newest writings in the Old Testament. Why, why didn't the nations rage? I, none of the ones I mentioned are raging now. Alexander, he might have been great. I imagine being his, his like, I don't know, spouse or kiddo was a chore, but I, and, maybe, and maybe not. Like He was dead at 32. Where, where are these past mighty nations now? Where are they? Well, they're in history books. They're, they're adapted and recorded on 70 millimeter film for your IMAX viewing pleasure, right? That's, that's where they are. Why do the nations rage against the Lord? And, that, and that's a question for both God lovers and God haters. It's, it's for both. If God is all powerful, then why does he let the nations rebel? If God is sovereign, then why do the nations rebel? Psalm 2 tells us why. Psalm 2 tells us why the nations rage against the Lord and, and how the Lord responds. And the response is this. Psalm 2 mercifully warns raging tyrants and nations with his royal word. Psalm 2 graciously offers refuge to the rebellious. Some, some folks choose to open up the Psalter and just read a psalm at random. Uh, I've done it. We've probably all done it, right? There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but, but when it comes to Psalm 2, it's really, it's just best to read Psalm 1 first. You, you could skip to Psalm 2 if you wanted to, but that, that's like coming into a movie 20 minutes late. Like, why, why would you? If you don't have to, why, why would you? Why would you want to? This psalm, this book of praises, has been described uh, for years by, by church fathers as an epitome of the whole scriptures, a compendium of all theology, a, a little Bible, like a summary of the Old Testament itself. What's more, the same could be said of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is like a mini Bible. Psalm 1 has a, has a blossoming tree, like the tree of life in Genesis. And then at, 
after time's end, the, the tree of life, again, we see revisited in Revelation. Psalm 1 praises the one who loves God, who loves the rules of God, God's law, like Jesus came and loved God and obeyed the rules of God. Psalm 1 is apocalyptic. It warns sinners to change, to repent now, today. There's a final judgment after death where the righteous are accepted, the godless are removed. Psalm 2, where we will be this morning, has similar themes to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 praises the blessed man. In Psalm 2, we see that this, this blessed man is, is the king, or should be the king in Israel. Psalm 1, the godly meditate on God and God's rules. In Psalm 2, we see, we see the ungodly meditate on how to shake loose from God and God's rules. Psalm 1 and 2, they, they praise God's law and God's anointed king, and, and it fits together like a glove. Now, there's some things that just don't, they just don't mix well together, right? Oil and water, it's gross. Uh, so, uh, toothpaste and orange juice, right? It's just, it's just gross. Salt in the wound. Um, dare I say pop music and a sense of taste, right? Um, uh, there's some things that do mix well together. Pizza and a movie, peanut butter and jelly, uh, cake and ice cream. And in Psalm 1 and 2, it's God's rich instruction and God's royal king. It's perfect. The Psalms highly value both Torah, meaning the law of God, and Messiah, meaning God's anointed one. It's, it's the origin of the word that we use when we say Christ. It's Messiah, the anointed one, the king. This combination of kingship and law was of utmost importance to Israel. We know that when, when any king would first sit on the throne, he was commanded by God to do what? To write out a copy of God's law. It would be reviewed and approved by the Levitical priests, and then the king knew from the law he just copied that he was supposed to take it with him wherever he went. He, he, was, he was supposed to measure everything by its standard, right? Are, are the priests sacrificing correctly? Check the book. Are the ju judges governing with equity? Look at the law. Are neighbors treating one another fairly? The book knows. Are they all loving one another as the Lord has first loved us? Well, God's word will be the judge of that, not the king himself. The king grounded his kingship in God's revealed word. In this, he was blessed, and so were his people. Now, the former shepherd boy, David, was one of these kings. And as the apostles first said, he was the author of Psalm 2. And in the Bible, we see a promise that God makes to David about his line, his kingdom lasting forever. God did not give this promise to other kings and other nations, only to David. Forever, without end, there would be this line of David kings, first his son, then his son's son, and so on. These are what came to be known as the Davidic kings. Each of these kings would have a coronation, that is like a, a specific time where they would be crowned king in Israel. So since David wrote Psalm 2, it, it just would have been fitting for it to have been read along with each coronation for each new king in Israel. So before anointing the king, we, we could imagine a, a narrator of the coronation who would have read sections of, of God's law and selections from the Psalms, uh, possibly. And before turning to Psalm 2, the narrator might first remind the, the soon-to-be king of the one who is truly blessed, right, from Psalm 1. He's the one who soaks up God's refreshing word like a mighty oak's root soak up water. Rooted in God's word, everything that this blessed man touched would prosper. Imagine too then, 
thousands of Israelites who would have gathered all around on Coronation Day to, to catch a glimpse of the king who would be crowned. Their, their own book of kings had prepared them for all that's going to happen, right? It says this in 2 Kings. They will put a crown on him and give him God's covenant. They will proclaim him king and anoint him. And then they will clap their hands and say, long live the king. So the narrator begins. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So God established this, this promise to David, this Davidic dynasty for all time, in order for God to establish his rule across all lands, not just, not just the one first promised to Israel. And this word had reached beyond the walls of Israel. God's promise to David and to David's sons threatened the local powers at hand. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They didn't think that David could claim this or his sons could claim this. Psalm 72 says this, May God have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So God's word had, had reached foreign ears. And so, so a reckless revolt is about to take place and take shape. This, this international conspiracy meditates on, on mischief. They, they meet to, to hatch a plot, even though it's in vain. It's a vain plot. It's empty. It is worthless. And, and while these tyrants rage needlessly, while, while they rage worthlessly, they don't rage aimlessly. What do they do? They have their fixed sights on God and God's Messiah, this new king. But, but the rulers of the world, they, they have it all upside down. Right? We, we know this. They think that if, if they relinquish power to the almighty creator, that their lives will become smaller. They, they've been tricked into thinking this by, by the false gods of their own making who give them false authority. They've been duped by the prince of lies. One scholar said, that the nations in Psalm 2 see submission to God as bondage and his sovereignty as restrictive, his will as demeaning. The nations want autonomy. They want freedom. Responding to the serpent's whisper to Eve in the garden, they want to be like God. They want to be their own God. But submission to our creator has never, in the whole Bible, ever been anything about subtraction. It's never been put in terms of subtraction, meaning we never lose when we submit to God. We never miss out truly when we obey. With God, instead of our lives getting less significant and smaller in submission, we, we experience true significance for the first time. In, in a narrow-sighted king's world, though, he, he has his realm, as big as it may be, and, and it's in his lifetime only. Psalm 2 says he is vastly limited in his imagination. If this rebel ruler were to have realized that there is a king of kings and that this king is all-powerful and he is good, the world and the God who runs it becomes much greater, much grander than this rebel leader could have ever imagined. We read that the nations thought of, of the bonds of God as, as heavy chains, so they, they plotted to cast off cords because they thought of them as, as handcuffs. Why? It's because their vision was too small. They, these narrow-minded empires only knew of ropes for tying their victims' hands 
or chains for the purpose of binding their conquered captives. They only knew subjugation in terms of humiliation and defeat, never freedom. So asking why, why do the nations murmur murderously against the Lord? It's a very fair question because it doesn't make sense to go up against the God of the universe. Uh, and, and it has quite the obvious answer, right? Is a kingdom free when it goes against the kingdom of God? That's like asking, is a fish most free out of the water? Is a train more free when it's off its track? Can a soul ever have freedom while daily defying its creator? In this, we see an unfolding revolt aimed at God. This revolt is not, it's not just the nation's but the very people living in them. These are not just international issues, right? They're individuals with issues against God and his anointed one. Even ancient Israel was a nation divided, revolting and rebelling against the Lord. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah makes this clear. He, he accuses the people of Israel. He says this, long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you to God. Often in the Old Testament, the nations that were united against Israel we're united against an already divided Israel. You might be here today, and, uh, and, and you might feel deeply troubled about the divisiveness in this nation. I, I hate division too. I, I hate division too. But a, but a nation divided is far less troubling, far less troubling than individuals united in sinful defiance. Recently, one of my good friends, he made the statement, he said this, he said, Christ became a curse on the very tree he spoke into existence. And as I was thinking through this in Psalm 2, and it just got me thinking about just how, how plain opposite humanity is from, from our king. It's one reason why so many people don't get him. They don't, they don't have a category. They, they lack the, the gift of faith to recognize grace when they see it. So, so they minimize the work of Christ. They minimize the perfect life that he lived and his atoning love and sacrificial death for us. It's, it's why we didn't understand him before he opened our eyes. And unlike Christ, humanity curses God with the very lips Christ spoke into existence. What did, what did Jesus' brother say? With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Human beings harbor hate inside the very heart that God pumps blood into and out of each and every day. United in sinful defiance, Nationals, internationals proudly choose to think too much of themselves and not enough of their neighbors. With calm, calloused rationality, humanity chooses to, to persuasively argue against and ignore God who gave them the ability to think and rationalize in the first place. This united sinful defiance is far more dangerous to the soul than any nation divided. And, and you must see this, if you're going to value proclaiming the gospel to your neighbor and to the nations above how much you love being right about your politics. You just got to see this. To, uh, to turn uh, Nietzsche's phrase around a bit, freedom, freedom from the treacherous, it's like, it's like unchaining the earth from the sun. Uh, going, going against God's grain, it's, it's like a toddler getting on one of their step stools and just shouting, Let's, let's break off these gravitational chains, right? How dare the sun make us revolve around it? This maniacal revolt must be answered in kind, divine laughter. 
we see divine laughter. Back at the king's coronation, after witnessing the nation's revolt, we next hear the Lord's response to this revolt. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The, the kings of earth, in verse 1, are no match for the king in heaven. But it's, but it's not that God is far off and uncaring in heaven. He does not laugh with, with passive nonchalance. No, it, it's been said that laughter restores perspective. There is such a thing as taking the world's arrogance too seriously. God laughs. We join him. In the laughter, every high-flown pretension is seen as silly posturing. So even while the nations snarl, growl, plot a revolt, the Holy Spirit pulls back the curtain for us in these verses and tells us what's really going on, right? The rebel nations are all bark and no bite. They're all bark, all bark and no bite. The proud puffing of chests, the, the insane level of aggression from the nations gets met with a, a laugh like lightning, right? And it, and it quickly rolls into thunderous and almighty derision. Millions, perhaps, over the years have read Psalm 2, and, and maybe this is where some of them have, have parted ways permanently with God. They, they think, you know, wrathful, wrathful speech terrifying the nations? Like, this is too much. This is, this is too severe. This is harsh. Are God's words terrifying here? Yes, absolutely. Harsh? There's not a chance. They are not harsh. If this was harsh, there would be no warning, only fierce punishment. The holy and terrible words unleashed here are, are some of the most harsh, less words that rebel men and women could possibly hear. If we think Psalm 2 is harsh, you got, you got the prophet Isaiah, right? What does he say? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket to God. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. It is he who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Harsh? Still not a chance. Not a chance. I don't, I don't buy it. There was once a powerful rebel king from world history who experienced discipline from God. After, after snapping out of his insanity, this is what was recorded. This is what he said. At the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is, this is from a rebel king himself, right? He heard Psalm 2, snapped out of it, and, and he was glad. He was thankful for it. it. It's not harsh for a stranger to scream at your kiddo to not walk in the middle of the street. It's not harsh for someone to break a couple ribs, to give you chest compressions, to keep you alive. It would be cruel to do otherwise. It's not harsh for God to move in, in holy aggression toward those who defy him. It's not harsh for God to terrify those who what? The nations, the nation's leaders, those who keep 
God's image bearers from knowing of his grace, mercy, and peace. That's not harsh. If you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus. Have you heard the terrifying response of the Almighty? And the question is, is how, how will you respond to him? I'd imagine that uh, during Israel's coronation, the narrator would, would say verse 6, and then he, would, then he would turn it over to the king, right? He would turn it over to the soon-to-be king for the next line. So the narrator says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the, the soon-to-be king would say, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So first, God, God doesn't really say what we would expect him to say, right? He's just been talking about fury and wrath, and, and you're like, what is he going to say, right? It's not what we would expect him to say. If the grasshopper nations have threatened to topple his kingdom, after, after the divine comedy segment and the follow-up wrath, we would expect something else, like a host of angel armies against the nations. God's response instead is not what we would expect wrathful speech and fury to sound like. Here's... Here's his response. He says, this is Israel's anointed king. Checkmate. This is the peak moment in Psalm 2. That The crowning of the king is the crowning achievement in Psalm 2. This Davidic kingship lies, lives in light of all that God has done for his people. God had divinely rescued over a million Israelites out of Pharaoh's grip. He kept them alive in the desert for 40 years, feeding them day after day. He granted supernatural victory to them over their enemies. He led them into their current promised country, Jerusalem, Zion. And now God's word is a royal word. He has sent his king and set him on the throne. So God's king will do what? He will enact justice. He will rule by God's holy law. He will set things right. This is the purpose and the intent of Israel's king. And, and a result is there will be peace through this king. Now, now the difficulty for us might be that, that we just so strongly associate power, raw power, fury, with, with military might or, or physical strength mainly. But, but God's mighty power is stronger than natural strength. I have moved my chosen king into place. Look to him now for hope. And if the ancient nations were not terrified at these words, then, then woe to them. They had been warned. They all made their moves. They positioned themselves to defeat God and God's anointed. And God's response to their revolt remained. It remained this, simply. The king is here. Checkmate. And now we see the king, newly crowned, speak during his coronation. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Israel's uh, neighboring nations, they just had a really bad habit of deifying themselves. Uh, so, so the pharaohs, the emperors, the kings, they, they didn't just see that they received divine blessing, but they took, they claimed or took on some of that divinity. Um, but these human rulers, though often claiming to be god gods themselves, uh, missed out on what was happening in the Psalms and in Israel. Israel, on the other hand, held one thing in paramount. What was it? The Lord your God, the Lord is one. He did not share his glory with another. He was not giving a, his divinity to a human king. The surrounding nations had multiple gods. 
Israel uniquely had one God. And, and this new Israelite king and the Levitical priests of God knew that this son language, this begotten language, gave them divine authority. The king had divine authority, but not divinity itself. So because it is the, the day of coronation, the king is begotten of God today. In God's promise of an everlasting throne in the line of David, God specifically says, he says this to King David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God has both figuratively signed the, the adoption papers and handed over the inheritance to his new son. This, this is a reminder of Israel that God's promise was still standing. The king continues to declare God's royal decree. He will inherit the world. The, the defiant will be crushed. The rebellious nations will be obliterated. So why, why do the nations rage? Taking a stand against the Almighty, it, it's, it's suicide. It's pointless. It will not turn out the way they wish. The, the nations raged because they hated the idea of God wielding all the power and of God being in the one who is in control. Rebellious world leaders may, may appear strong. They may have great earthly power, but with no divine aid, uh, aid they, they are fragile. They're breakable like, like pottery, right? We see this, this rod given to the king. It's like a shepherd's staff or crook. A shepherd used uh, the rod for two reasons. One, on the sheep when necessary, and then like how it is used here mainly in Psalm 2, with crushing force on God's enemies, like metal hammering dried clay. A, a, a clay pot could just drop or accidentally break by just dropping it, let, let alone from a shattering blow with a dense iron rod. And, and this metal rod was not something the king in Israel created to, to have dominion. No, it was God's given rod to the king. Israel's anointed king was given global authority. And this coronation would, would have infused Israel with faith and courage that their new king's power wasn't like power from the other nations. It was from God, not from the king itself. So after the king has been crowned, he takes a seat. We, we could picture this narrator once again returning to the podium and making a, a concluding proclamation. What does he say? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, Israel didn't live in a, in a bubble where somehow they knew about the other nation's gods, like Baal or, or Molech, and then, and then the other nations somehow didn't know about Yahweh. No, they, they knew. All the nations knew who Yahweh was, who the Hebrew God was. King Solomon's life makes a point in, in this. King Solomon's wise reign had, had reached far and wide, even to the Queen of Sheba, when the Queen of Sheba came to visit him just to, just to see what Israel was, was all about, right? It's reported that the Queen of Sheba established what is now modern-day Ethiopia. It's about 2,500 miles south of, of Israel. And, uh, and for those of us geographically challenged like me, that's, that's like West Coast America to East Coast America. So it's a little bit of a ways. You kind of just hop on a plane back then, right? The nations knew of Israel and Israel's God. They were not unaware so the warning was clear, and it was not unreasonable. It was a call to wise living. It was a call for the kings 
to abandon the smallness of their lives in exchange for God's glory beyond measure. The, the nations tried turning the tables. They thought of Israel as, as insignificant. Why? Mainly probably because of their size. They were small in size. But the nations refused to be aware of the fact that, that God, God works in small things. God works in small things, but he never does anything small. God worked through small Israel, but his intent has always remained large. He will cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. So the nations and kings, they, they mistakenly thought that living under God's law and God's king would be entering a life of servile punishment. God, speaking through his prophet Hosea, revealed that, that the bondage and cords the nations thought were, were true bonds and true cords, handcuffed, chained down, were in fact bands of love, what Hosea calls cords of kindness. It, it would only be when a king's blind eyes were opened that they would see they were being led not into captivity, but, but out of captivity. Kings, nations, presidents, politicians have everything to gain in submission to God. Psalm 2 teaches that, that leaders of nations and nations themselves need to be jolted awake by just how blindingly foolish it is to oppose God. And, and for those of us who are in Christ, before we knew Christ, we, we did what? We trembled. We trembled upon realizing that God had seen every proud thought, every arrogant intention in our heart, and, and yet, what? He still offered us pardon. If you've only known fear and trembling in your life, whether that's someone sinning against you from recognizing that the fear of the Almighty, know this, God will pardon you. He will forgive you when you go to his son. This phrase, kiss the son, it, it sounds strange to our, to our modern ears, uh, but, it, but it has to do with showing humble reverence with, with sincere honor to God's anointed king. So it's like, a, it's like a salute in the military to a higher rank or, or a bow to a monarch. The kings and nations in Israel's time were called to pay homage, to show true fidelity and fearful respect to God's chosen, chosen king, the Messiah. Uh, kiss the sun probably hasn't been the only strange sounding you know, phrase or group of words in Psalm 2. We have kings, ancient kings, right? Clay pots, kisses. It might sound outdated or, or archaic to us, um, but, but the fact remains, humanity has always worshipped what it values. We have always worshipped what we value. Humans know what it means to pay respect to, to modern gods every day, right? Many of us literally bow our heads with, with full reliance on the gods of tech. And, and we have given them and sought out our source of strength, comfort, and connection through, through the little device that we carry around, right? Our, our current ritual, it includes just, you can, you can uh, put in a little six-digit code, you got a fingerprint, a little swipe, right? And then you're in. Your, your pocket totem is granted you access to everything. Right? Kiss, kiss the sun wouldn't sound quite as odd to us if, if like the, the tech gods out there started saying, hey, you don't have access to your phone unless you kiss it. Kiss the phone lest you not have access. And people all over the world would be, what? They'd be pursing their lips all the time. They'd think it's weird, but they would do it, right? Humanity has always worshipped what it has valued. This has not changed. And God has spoken. If we don't bow in humble respect, we don't kiss the sun, we don't honor his appointed king, that's like dishonoring God too. 
And God takes that personally. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 ends, not, not in furious punishment, but what? In hopefulness. Israel and the surrounding nations were charged with seeking shelter under this new king. Blessing upon blessing would be granted to any national leader who dropped pretenses, who quit masquerading as mighty, and found safe refuge and swore allegiance to God and to God's king. Seeking refuge, seeking shelter, it's, it's not a, that's not a strange concept to us, right? We, we seek financial shelter when we say, what, I, I just want to be okay. <laughs> I just want enough to be comfortable. I don't, I don't ever want to have to worry about money again. We seek financial shelter. We, we seek relational refuge when we imagine, I, I just want to be okay. I just want a simple family, supportive spouse, kids. I just want to be okay. We seek provisional shelter through job security or, or a place to call home. If I just had this job or that promotion, everything would be okay. If I could just, if I could just live here in this kind of place, then I'll, then I'll never thirst for a home again, right? And, and a question Psalm 2 makes us face, even as believers, is what, what makes even the people of God so unconcerned with God's shelter? God's shelter speaks a better word to us than we can for ourselves. You, you were more than okay when you were taking refuge in God. Unlike money, a family, job, a house, God's kingdom can never come up short or fall apart. This is why the scriptures stress over and over again that we are to wait patiently for the Lord to act. Israel experienced king after king and coronation after coronation only to be disappointed, right? Only to see their kingdom divided, both kingdoms fall, and then what happens? They're eventually exiled. The, the kings failed to recall their coronation decrees. They neglected to obey God's law. And given the, the repeated failures here, the question is, is well, what, what's going to happen? Israel even got to wondering how God's promise to David would continue. For some of them were like, did God really promise that to David? Like, we, we don't even have a kingdom left to put a king on the throne in. Israel had to wait for God to act. So the faithful took shelter in God's word and they waited for, for who? They waited for the anointed one. They waited for a Messiah. This was the great anticipation. Hundreds of years after the Psalms, the writers of the New Testament, they identified the Messiah's arrival. Jesus of Nazareth, who, who fit the kingly picture of Psalm 2, he, he fit it to the T. After Jesus ascended to heaven in the book of Acts the disciples Peter and John quote Psalm 2 and then identify Jesus as God's anointed one. They just straight up say it. They identify the kings and rulers who conspired against God specifically. They call out Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel when referring to why did the nations rage against God and God's anointed one? Why did Herod, why did Pontius Pilate, why did the mob rage against Jesus? Peter and John knew the ultimate answer, and they said it plainly. This is an Acts. This is in your Bible. You can read this. It says, it was accomplished. It was to accomplish all that God had predestined to take place. Later in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they go to a synagogue uh, where, where Paul is granted an opportunity to speak. And uh, knowing Paul, Paul speaks, right? That's just what he does. Early on in his speech, Paul traces Jesus to the line of David. He, he is connecting the dots for his listeners to explain that Jesus was an heir to this lost throne, 
That's what he's doing. Paul explains that Jesus was unjustly killed, but then God raised him from the dead. Paul then says, he says this, and we bring you the good news that what God promised, right, to, to kings of old, to Israel of, of times past, what God promised has been fulfilled to us by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. For Paul, it's as though Christ's coronation, his coronation day began the day that Jesus conquered what? Death through rising again. Paul connects the resurrection to Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's been said that what distinguishes Jesus from a mere earthly king and what shows him to be more than human in his sonship is this psalm right here and Christ's resurrection. God delivered on his promise through his Davidic kings. Many kings came and went, right? Nations came and went, kingdoms rose, kingdoms fell, but the one king was established and he continually reigns. God, God said it before. He said this, I have set my king in Zion and God said it one more time by way of his son who, who conquered what no earthly king or raging nation could come up against and survive. He conquered death itself. So, so like the pinnacle of Psalm 2's crowning of the king, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, what is, that, what is God saying? Checkmate on sin, death, and hell. This is what he is saying. And now the resurrected, incorruptible, indestructible son is king over all kings. When Jesus comes again, John echoes some of what Psalm 2 says. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This is in Revelation. This has not happened. This will happen. This will take place. But first, what do we see the Apostle Paul do that we are to do? The Apostle Paul went to the nations in revolt. The Apostle Paul opened up Psalm 2 alongside the work of Christ and explained to them that they must take hope in gospel refuge in Christ alone. He declared that today is the day of salvation. And, and very soon, very soon, Jesus will come again in, in strength like no other. Now, today though, today, he comes in what? He comes in kindness. A kindness that Paul says turns hard hearts his kingdom, a kindness which leads us to repentance, a kindness that extends to nations across the world. God graciously commands that his word reach all nations in revolt, for his son has now been crowned king. So Jesus will, he will rule over every nation, down to every tribe, because all authority on earth and on heaven has been given to him. Uh, you individually, you individually have been told by Christ First, what? To find forgiveness from sins in him and then to tell others what he has done for you, what he has spoken, and why he has entered into our history. So, so faith family, fellow believers, th this is how you are to, to pick up Psalm 2 with you and carry it with you this week. One, pray. Lord, let me, let me hear your word and then let me do your word. Easier said than done. Who will I talk with this week about you? And two, ask yourself, when will I talk with them? 
Let's do this together. Let's obey our King together. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.